0: This podcast is supported by IFC Films, presenting Wildlife. Carey Mulligan and Jake Gyllenhaal star in actor Paul Dano's directorial debut. Opens in New York and Los Angeles on October 19th, in theaters everywhere starting November 2nd. Imaging the avant-garde, Taiwan's film experiments in the 1960s, brings rare and restored films from Taiwan to U.S. audiences for the first time from October 17 to 21 in Philadelphia and New York. For details, visit Lightbox Film Center's and Anthology Film Archives' websites.
1: Welcome to the Film Comment podcast. My name is Nicholas Rapold, and I'm the editor in chief of Film Comment. It's become an annual tradition at the New York Film Festival for us to get together and talk about our favorite movies from the selection. The festival is over now, but as usual, before it ended, our all-star team of film comic contributors got together in front of an audience to talk about highlights, such as The Favourite, If Beale Street Could Talk, and the newly finished Orson Welles movie, The Other Side of the Wind. For this talk, I was very proud to be joined by the legendary critic Molly Haskell, as well as K. Austin Collins, film critic at Vanity Fair, Elisa Ma, head programmer of Metrograph, Eric Hines, curator at the Museum of the Moving Image, and Michael Koreski, the creative and editorial director of the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Let's go to the discussion, which Molly Haskell kicks off in roaring fashion.
2: Can I just start with a couple of general thoughts? Oh, please do, yes. It'll lead into that. um, The stage is yours. So, this is my, I have two thoughts. One is how badass can a woman character be without losing the audience completely? Um, And I'm thinking partly of the ladies in the favorite, Emma Stone and Rachel Weiss, but mostly of Elizabeth Moss in Her Smell and Catherine Hahn in Private Life. And it's something that I've been noticing, it's these, these women who are, it's not like the sort of bad girls of yore who, who weren't that in your face, it's this kind of um, act of, of aggression against the characters in the film and by proxy the audience. And I um, mean, I think about, it, there are a lot of women that, that it's sort of, I've, I've noticed it lately, or sorry, maybe with Jennifer Jason Lee in Georgia, and uh, Jennifer Aniston and Laura Dern in some of their roles, Lena Dunham, of course, um, Julianne Moore, uh, Nicole Kidman, and their, I mean, this doesn't exactly apply to all of them, but it's this kind of sense that, see how obnoxious I am, j- just, I dare you to take your, to, to not to look at me, and it's, it's kind of fascinating, and what I wonder is, um, when, they, when they get, how do they get away with it, when they get away with it, and of course, different people, this is why I'm, I hope this will open up, because I think different. it may be a generational thing, different people have different responses to them. Um, and the, I think one of the things is a kind of star power that's not old Hollywood star power, but just charisma. And <clears throat> I was thinking about this during the festival, because so many of the films, of course, are, are really non-narrative. They're meditative, they, they don't give out much information, they're slow. This is what we love about them. but. Um, How do they keep you engaged? And a lot of it has to do with this kind of star power. I mean, this is the Asian, all of the films, I think this is true of. And Claire Denis said something in the press conference after um, uh, High Life. She said she almost didn't, she was worried about casting Robert Pattinson because she felt he was too much of a star. He had too much charisma. But to me, that's just, that's what that movie needs. It's just that kind of star power because you're sort of loose in space and you need a kind of center of gravity. So um, that, those are the two thoughts. Um, I'm sort of hot and cold. I've been hot and cold on Lanthimos. Um, he is, of course, a provocative. That, that's the other thing. I mean, these, a lot of the films now, like these, the women I've described, are sort of real deliberate acts of provocation. Mm-hmm. They want to make you feel uncomfortable. They want to put you not at dis-ease. And of course, I think the favorites is very much like that. Um, I think this, the bad girl thing can be very exhilarating sometimes. It's like women are unleashing decades of rage and fury and nice girl repression. And, and when is it exhilarating and when is it not? Um, so I think he, he, there's something, obviously, but he did... Um, uh, the w- ones that I like the most, I think, are Dogtooth and Killing of a Sacred Deer because they seem to me to relate to some angst or some social issue that feels familiar. Uh, I'm not sure what he's after with the favorite, but it's, it's very dark, and I think what he also does is this, what the, best, the best kind of auteurs is when they do period is this combination of some kind of allegiance to the period, but um, somehow making it contemporary in a way that, 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 that is startling and, and new. And he does this, I think, brilliantly, and I think part of it's a the dialogue, There's this is raucous Expletive! very, very modern contemporary dialogue. And it reminded me a little bit of the life of Stalin that does the same thing, this sort of anachronism with history that just really works well. So I I think I was mostly with it. I think he has trouble. They're sort of high-concept films, and he has a little trouble ending them. And and you sort of... I have this feeling that I'm not sure what what, Even, I think, in some of the the films that are most, like, Burning, which I I really loved, but it's very... um, parsimonious with information. There are long stretches of people running and you're not sure what's going on. It sort of, it holds you, it holds you in a way because you feel this, some kind of underlying sense of purpose. It's going somewhere. Well, I'm not sure about that with Lanthimos, so yeah. let's stop with that.
3: I I also have, uh, I've had kind of back and forth uh, feelings about Lanthimos, mm-hmm. I suppose. And I actually was not a fan of Killing of a acre Deer no. at all. It's but funny no, to hear that's one of your favorites. I
2: think it's just one of the creepiest, scariest films I've ever seen. And This arrogant <laughs> doctor, Colin Farrell, is. I, mean, wait, wait,
3: wait, wait, wait. I <laughs> well, I actually I really enjoyed his. I love the dialogue in the first half hour of the film where yeah. they're seeing these banalities and yeah, these kind of robotic yeah, ways. They, once, the, yeah. once the once the plot itself mm-hmm. kicks in, I felt like it was kind of overburdened with its own like mythos or something. But but the favorite worked for me. I, I, I even though I'm still kind of puzzling over it, I've actually seen it twice, and I'm still puzzling over it. Um, and hearing the very um, divisive responses after mm. after the opening night was actually kind of exhilarating because yeah. everybody seemed to see something different in it. Mm. Everything had, everyone had a different political response to it. Um, for me, it was really just kind of like the the, the pleasure of transgression, mm. which I think is what is what this, is, you what you were, yeah. is what you're is what you're saying. And, um, and and I think Olivia. It's interesting because Olivia Coleman's character, she's the queen, um, Queen Anne she is this constant, she's this anchor in the center. Everyone else has an arc, Mm -hmm. and she stays the same all the way through. She's this sort of tortured, um, ridiculous soul, in a way. And I thought it was really interesting watching the other characters just satellite around it. It's very rare that you have the center of a film who's so kind of unchanging and kind of sad. And I'm really fascinated by her, and she's the thing that I keep going back to, whereas the film, I'm still kind of
2: puzzling over. Yeah, I think she's the one, if there is a sort of melancholy at the end, where, where you really do feel... Um, this woman who's just tortured psychologically and physically her whole life and these these women are I mean I I think it's fascinating what they have to do I mean it's like people who have to think strategically every minute of the day and what that does to them Mm -hmm. so that every moment is calculated and uh, and and also the fact that these three fabulous women are are sort of circling each other is wonderful.
1: I mean it's interesting how that also connects with her smell in that case it's you know a, a star performer who you know, any, anything that comes out of her mouth is, is A, often offensive, and B, probably is gonna cause her some problems down the line, so it's also that, you know, you're constantly being analyzed and, and looked at, when, you know, on the contrary, the, uh, Elizabeth Moss' character, you know, she's, she's that's what she is, she's like a free artist, she's gonna say and do whatever she wants, mm. and, and it's just a matter of how that burns her out, and she just burns out because of that or, or not. What
2: did other people think of that? I'm very curious as to,
3: of her smell or the her smell, yeah i knocked my socks off actually you what it knocked my socks off <laughs> really uh-huh. uh and that's a phrase that i don't use often
2: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: and, and yeah i'm wearing socks michael it, could I you am. just tone tone down your language a little it's a little sorry about that nick um yeah i won't go too too deep into it because i want to hear what other people have to say but i um, i just the arc of that film i think there was the, the chance of people maybe walking out of that film oh. Halfway through, because uh, it's it's very aggressive. It's it's, it's trying to it's make totally you hate punishing. it. punishing. Yeah. yeah, and then uh, once you get to that fourth act, and there are five acts of the film, it just it started to kind of tear my heart out. I thought that the last two chapters were pretty amazing.
4: Yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of her smell as well. I actually, when I saw it uh, at TIFF a number of weeks ago at a critics screening, I was taken aback by how many walkouts there were. And I specifically came to a public screening here in Alice Tully where it's harder to walk out because <laughs> you know, there are no aisles. <laughs> um, and so I really wanted to see who was going to try to do it anyway and was actually sort of surprised by how many people stuck with it because it really is a film that, you know, I can imagine a version of this film in which there are only two aggressive opening chapters and then you sort of give people the relief of the... Yeah, the it's unrelieved. Second, yeah Yeah. But really a, a third chapter there, really still going with it and really making people sit with it longer than I think they really want to um, is fascinating. I also just think that her bad behavior is fascinating, this Shakespearean villain stuff she does, these um, quiet moments in the studio in the second chapter of her sort of off in the zone expressing something that I think only the, the guy who's doing the recording in the studio played by Keith Paulson really seems to be aware of it when he pushes covertly pushes the record button, etc. cetera. Um, is really fascinating and then I also you know I don't need a redemption narrative and I'm I'm generally Mm -hmm. not interested in them but what interested me about the last chapter of this was how careful Elizabeth Moss was to make sure that we understood how scared she is like the the line is this the day that I'm not going to make it or something like that was extremely moving to me Um, her hesitance to go on stage is extremely moving to me. And, and also just, you know, as someone who has known addicts and has sort of seen this cycle up close, it, it was really powerful to me the, the sort of immediacy with which everyone around her fell into the fear that things weren't going to work out again. Um, th- that really got me. And I, and I, you know, I'm kind of, I just saw another movie about addiction, um, Beautiful Boy, which I like substantially less. And I and I've been thinking a lot about just that narrative and, and what um, what it does for me. I think what's interesting about this is that it really it's so over the top that I'm I'm curious about people who find it actually sort of cartoonish. Because mm-hmm. I think that's a huge risk. And I think it finds a genuine soul in there somewhere, but it doesn't really take an easy path to get there, which which excites me.
5: Well Molly used the the word provocation about some of these films and it's it's interesting to me that how I don't think this is a formal provocation. In some ways it's very mm-hmm. classical. It's yeah. five mm-hmm. acts, five mm-hmm. scenes you have the sort of Shakespearean behavior, like bad behavior of a villainous who's also our hero, um, and so like the the provocation all comes from that character, and in a sense, as a as an addiction narrative, it's entirely plausible. Actually, I think that type of behavior, and so the provocations are all from an individual who's in a ton of pain and is out of control rather than a provocation which is a filmmaker designing something to get a reaction out of an audience. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, like, there's an, I think there's a ton of integrity behind that in order to actually get at this character and get at what she's going through, you actually have to be repelled. And mm-hmm. it's repellence, it's being, you're being repelled not for provocation again, you're being repelled because this is actually how, how this goes.
3: Yeah, if you were cu- if if she were cuddly in some way, or if there was any, if you wanted to stay in the theater, the movie the movie may have failed, right? You have right. to want to
2: run streaming. I don't think those are the only choices.
3: <laughs> Can I just say I really wanted to stay the whole time,
4: but but totally knowing that that yeah. that the movie was pushing up against that, but I really right. I mean, I, I love to see bad behavior on screen, <laughs> uh, um, and I just wanted to know where it was going. I just didn't really know, you know, even even as it does have a kind of classical structure, I really didn't know where we were going with this. And for most of the movie, I really just don't know.
3: It's
5: well, always
4: possible
3: the fourth act will be another chapter, totally, like yeah. the first three. Well, especially because Alex Ross Perry's movies, and, and I like many of them, but in the past they're about people who do terrible things to each other constantly and they're in cycles of torment and pain mm-hmm. and there's no redemption so for this movie to go in a different direction was a surprise and that's one of the reasons why not only is it important to watch the whole thing but I mean <laughs> that should be true of any film but even if it's like jostling you and wanting you to run um, he's doing something very different here and it made me it put it cast a new light on his whole
1: career yeah me. Yeah, I mean, it's it's also interesting that it's a movie that at the same time makes you very aware that some sort of journey is taking place, but without having any idea where it's going to gonna go necessarily, um, you know, which makes me think a bit about um, uh, Three Faces, the Jafar Panahi movie. Again, I mean, a lot of his movies have that kind of feeling of some sort of progression or journey, but you really don't know what's around the corner. And that's, it's even more vivid in that one because of the sense that it's somehow really happening or really happening to a filmmaker-like ca- um, character. Um and then I think a bit about *Burning* as well, because that's another movie where I'm very conscious that people are having some sort of journey. But he manages to, kind of, I don't know, through some sort of alchemy, you know, just you know, tantalizingly obscure where exactly each character is going to go, where they're going to end up. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about *Burning* a bit, uh, anyone. Have you, oh, did my, you, did well, you see... Uh, I would like Kim? to hear somebody
6: um, yeah, um, summarize the film.
1: <laughs> That's the, yeah, yeah, I, I kind of gave it. up. Have you, have you
3: seen it, been. Yeah, yeah. You know what, you're really good at summarizing no, things. No, 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 I think oh. you
6: are, Michael. I'm terrible, I'm truly <laughs> I'm terrible. really good at
1: it. No, I'm truly terrible.
6: <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, does that mean I have to do it? Yeah. Um, I, <laughs> I, well, I mean, Burning is, is, is basically... Uh, I mean, it's kind of a three-person... I don't want to say triangle because that simplifies it, but uh, you know, basically, there's, there's this young guy who's inherited a farm that is on, or kind of a farmhouse that's on the border with North Korea. Um, although that's not really relevant, but it's funny at some point. Um, and uh, he come, comes across a, 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 a woman that he knew from childhood, and she's you know gets involved with this mysterious millionaire played by. Our, our cover star, Stephen. Oh, Yoon. boy, he's fantastic. Yeah, who's fantastic. Um, and he's just, you know, the ultimate and hard to read and seems weirdly aloof. And every time the camera catches him, he seems to be, like, stifling a yawn at the very idea of reality <laughs> and existence.
6: He has this, like, Tetsuya Nakadai kind of mask-like yeah, face.
1: That's yeah. true, yeah. Very inscrutable. Yeah, and, I mean... So that's as far as I guess I could do the plot. It sort of plays out from there. That kind of fascination between um, of the younger guy to to this millionaire and just slow
3: simmering, strangely suspenseful, but you don't know why. I
2: I love his movies. I I thought um, Secret Sunshine and Poetry were just masterpieces, and he's always centered around women. Whereas here, the woman is this very cryptic, I mean, they're all cryptic in one way or another, except, well, the protagonist, who the would-be writer, is sort of the, the sort of most, um, the least opaque, I guess. I mean, he, he's a struggling, he takes creative writing, <laughs> just some very funny moments in that, but he sort <laughs> of becomes in, enamored of her, and she disappears um, three, yeah. qu- three quarters of the way through the film, and yet her, I mean, I think one of the great scenes in the festival was that scene where they're at the farm, and you're hearing that it's that, it's that trombone, so, Miles Davis' trombone solo yes. from uh, the Louis Mal film, mm-hmm. uh, Elevated to the Gallows. And she's dancing nude. And it's just the both of the men are, are completely stunned. And, and I mean, she's just so uninhibited. And they can't understand it. They're trying to fit that into their framework. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it goes on from there. And it's the, the two men. Then it becomes a sort of uh, mysterious antagonism between the two men.
3: It is a really hard movie to talk about with people who haven't seen it. What well, it tried is, and also to, and so, you know,
2: every once in a while, I, I would sort of think I was drifting away from it, and then it would pull me back. It's just it's full of mystery, uh, deliberately so. The information, you know, people ask questions; they're never going to be answered. Yeah. Um, the father is a, f- a fabulous character, the horrible, en- enraged father who's, who's uh, who he's trying to get a petition to people that like him to, to so- soften his penalty and nobody likes him. I, I mean, it's, it's funny and moving and strange and wonderful, I think.
4: I mean, I, I, the way that I've been trying to... I've just completely not tried to describe the plot to anyone, mm. but as a category movie that I frankly wish American films could and should do more often, just something as base as three hot young mysterious people (laughs) whose charisma is wielded toward a mysterious end rather than just
2: a result a a resolution right right just just yeah absolutely finding Mm
4: -hmm. finding what's intriguing and beautiful about these people and having these displays of emotion or character that grate against that in ways that are unexpected I mean there's not to be crass, but there's, there's stuff involving masturbation in this movie that just mm-hmm. in the theater, I was just like, what, what is, yeah. what, what are we watching? What, uh, but, not, but not in a bad way, but in a sort of, what are, we, what are yeah. we watching? What are we looking at when we're looking at this? And what is he looking at when he's masturbating? Yeah. It's not a person,
2: yeah.
4: um, it's, it's an edifice.
2: Right, um, and I thought Shoplifters was a little that way too, where you, 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 get the, you get the feeling before you get any kind of, any kind of narrative explanation for who these people are. You get this family feeling, this kind of makeshift surrogate family feeling, and you you go in backwards, and you never, and, and there again, you never have neat resolutions or redemptions.
3: That, that approach is something that I, I actually missed in the in the favorite. Mm-hmm. Only I only say that because Lanthimos' is, uh, films in, in the in the first part of his career, his films in Greece, Alps and Dogtooth were so much about being dropped in the middle of a right. world and not understanding its rules and only yeah. gradually coming mm-hmm. to figure out what's happening. Um, and I missed that part of his career. But it's something that I just I cherish so much. And you're right, you don't see that in American cinema. Well I think you, you mentioned that the Panahi. is the
2: same thing. I think the Panahi three faces you got the director himself and his actress. First you get this this horrible iPhone, this threat of suicide by this woman who desperately wants to be an actress and her family won't allow her. She's in the boondocks of Iran, or is it Turkey on the border, somewhere near Turkey and she threatens to suicide. so that they, they, they go to find her and it's for the for about the first half hour I, I found it just so irritating you know the people you run into these old crones and they're just um, they have their own rules and they're I mean they're ridiculous it's funny they were funny and that, that really the humor is sort of relieves it but then all of a sudden um, it's sort of you get this woman who you felt was had pulled this terrible stunt and and emotional blackmail on these people and gradually you see her desperation, and how this, I mean, mean, there's something so um, moving, I think, in the end, and again, it doesn't tell you where they're going, what's going to happen, is she going to be pulled back into this thing, or is she going to be liberated, but um, there's this wonderful surge of feeling, I think, at the end.
6: And Burning has that sort of ambiguity that's at its core as well, and I think part of the reason why it's so hard to talk about is the liminal quality of it. Both in the narrative and also every character they're in between like this mm-hmm. the simplest guy is just like in between like being <clears throat> writing and being published someday yeah in the distant future and the girl she goes to Africa and she kind of gets stranded there mm-hmm. and she comes back and this other guy is just like completely vaporous like void of personality um, and um, yeah, I, they never
2: declare themselves the way you. They would somehow in an American film they would somehow right. open the door
6: and invite you and in. And there's this yeah. push and pull mm-hmm. in the three of their dynamics that remains mysterious throughout the entire film. Mm-hmm. And um, there's this beautiful scene in in the cathedral um, where you know it's sort of um, just there are all these frescoes everywhere and it's very very disquieting. You know, because you have no idea where it's going, and you know that in in the minds of these characters, they're just thinking about burning everything down. <laughs> I mean, the the sort of I don't know ambiguity of not knowing where you are or who you are. It's it's a sort of existential ambiguity.
4: I, I think ambiguity is is what was missing from the favorite for me
6: mm-hmm.
4: in terms of, in particular, just actorly choices beyond Olivia Coleman. You know, I'm a I'm a fan of Emma Stone, but as soon as I saw her in the movie, I kind of knew what the movie was going to do with her and her Mm. persona and Mm. her capacity to be sharp or mean or Mm. deceitful things that I love, frankly, love in an actor. I love deceit (laughs) in film. Um, It's one of my favorite things because acting is lying, and I love that. But and and I just I love a persona fest as well. But the favorite didn't, you know, beyond Mm. Olivia Coleman didn't really. Push any of that for me. You know, I'm a really big fan of Rachel Vice. I didn't think that she was interesting, and I and I and these are people that I naturally find interesting. And I I kept wondering, is it the wigs? I I wanted to watch the bunnies. (laughs) You know, I I was more interested in the bunnies than in most people in the movie. Um, And I'm trying to figure that out. There was a scene. You know, there was a couple scenes at a brothel. I wanted the movie to hang out there for a bit, to be honest. Those people seemed more interesting to me, more lively, and had more going on in just the brief glimpses of them. Things I didn't know about them that I wanted to know, um, than two thirds of the main trio of this movie, and that really I never really got past that. Even for all the ways that I enjoyed it, it was empty calories for me, and I love calories, but but I, I need, you know, and I and I don't like vegetables, but I need I need, but I needed something else from the favorite. There was there was no yeah. bottom there. There was no you know there was nothing there for me. Mm.
0: This podcast is supported by IFC Films presenting Wildlife. Carrie Mulligan and Jake Gyllenhaal star an actor Paul Dano's directorial debut, based on the novel by Richard Ford. USA Today raves Wildlife is exquisite, with Mulligan giving an awards-worthy performance that crackles and flares. Wildlife opens in New York and Los Angeles on October 19th, in theaters everywhere starting November 2nd. Just how experimental could experimental film in Taiwan be in the 1960s? The new film series Imaging the Avant-Garde, brought to you by the Taipei Cultural Center features rare and restored titles by some of the most daring and creative artists in Taiwan from half a century ago. Screenings will take place at Lightbox Film Center in Philadelphia from October 17 to 19 and at Anthology Film Archives in New York from October 19 to 21. Details and ticket information are available at lightboxfilmcenter.org and anthologyfilmarchives.org.
3: Just to say, actually, maybe it's because I just really like Rachel Weisz so much, but actually her arc for me is the most interesting hmm. journey of the film, at least. Just watching her facade slowly crack. She's the one who has it all together. In a sense, it's kind of like watching someone um, who thinks they have such control over the world slowly realize that they don't, and that, you know, then that can be an interesting political and character thing. Hmm. Um, so that was what kind of propelled me through it. Because like I said, Olivia Coleman, as amazing as she is. She's just... Always this constant center, and I like the transformation of the other characters.
2: Well, I think his movies are not character-driven movies. They're they're really about situations, and um, and and they're austere in that way. And I think this is true here. They're really they're like on a chessboard, and they're and they're making moves, and that's what it is. It's just, I think, and Olivia Coleman. Um, he saw I, I wasn't familiar with her, and he found her in a movie called Tyrannosaur with Peter Mullen. I, I looked it up, and she is just amazing, and here she makes herself ugly. I mean, they all, this is the other thing, they all allow themselves to look very exposed, it seemed to me. They weren't, I mean, for all the performing that they're doing, there's something naked also about them. And she is this figure, I mean, she actually, Queen Anne was, I mean, you're never going to get it, this is an Atlanthimos film, but she did, she was quite an astonishing queen in her own way, but this is sort of at the end, and. The, the, the one strategy, you think and Rachel Weiss is really more political. I mean, she really has a, an ideology. She has a practical plan to keep the war with France, whereas Emma Stone is just feeling her way intuitively into this sort of caressing relationship. And I thought the contrast between the two women was, was, I mean, I didn't think of them as sort of fully dimensional characters, but, so.
1: I'm I'm curious, what are some other performers or performances that, that really, you know, were your favorites in, in, this, in this festival?
3: Um, I was gonna. I, I could talk about if Bill Street could talk uh, for a bit, though. Or I, I want to pass that along to other people as well. I was just kind of um, amazed by the uh, kind of beautiful recessive quality of the two main performers, yeah, Kiki Lane and Stefan James. Mm-hmm. Are their names? And I hadn't. I hadn't seen her before. I think. she think she's acted very much before at all. And he has this, um, Barry Jenkins has this quality, if you've seen Moonlight, you know, where he has actors look directly into the camera. And there's this communing with these actors that is so complete and full that I I was just uh, completely mesmerized. I was enamored of it. And the movie is, it can be very heartbreaking but it's also very lush and beautiful, and I think a lot of it has to do with the, the actor, the way the performers are used as well. Like, it's, they're great performances, they're subtle performances, quiet performances, but the way they're positioned in the frame is so much a part of that.
4: Yeah, I absolutely love Beale Street, and I think the acting in it is gorgeous. I think uh, an actor, in addition to the, to the leads, an actor worth calling attention to in that film is Brian Terry Henry. Oh, um, he's has so amazing. Who has a scene, basically, but it just, <laughs> A, it's it's a it, you know it's a beautifully acted scene. He he plays a, a kind of childhood friend of Fani, the Stefan James character, and he's just gotten out of prison, and they run into each other oh. on the street, um, and they have a conversation back at Fani's place, and it morphs into this discussion of uh, his time in prison, which is essential to the film. But it's really the closest the film comes to getting getting you inside the the prison itself beyond beyond the kind of interview scenes or you know between. Kiki and Stefan, Stefan, it really, this is the scene that tells me what prison is like.
2: Uh, oh, that, I thought it was a fantastic scene. It's wonderful. It, and one of the things, the, when they're looking at this, this space where they might live and they're imagining a refrigerator here, he said, I think the prison thing, you're, you're always imagining prison throughout that whole film, not just in that scene, but when he's talking to her. You're just It's just ways over the whole film. And the other thing I loved in that was the early scenes with the family. You know, I've just been rereading Notes of a Native Son, the Baldwin. It's just such a brilliant book. And in it, he, he, he criticizes Richard Wright and Native Son for not having um, bigger time as being so much an emblem and there being nothing about black people among themselves, their traditions, their, their lives, their conflicts. And I think the, the the scenes with the families are just brilliant in here. I, I sort of wanted more of that in a way.
4: Yeah, I, I love those scenes. And I also, I mean, again, I love melodrama. I love fighting <laughs> You're getting a sense of, I just love trash, I
1: guess. But, but, I, but, I,
4: but the early scene here that I think is so crucial and I think it's easy to miss how crucial it is because it's sort of a fun scene. The scene of inviting um, Fonny's family over to tell them that she's pregnant is, is a great conflict, but it's also just endlessly complicated in terms of the relationships that mm. are immediately, immediately clear in the performances, in the frames, in the, in the cuts to just a, a person's face, their anxiety, mm. um, their anger, their shame. Um, and, and I think it's really important that, as in Baldwin, um, Barry Jenkins certainly is reflecting Baldwin's feelings about, in this case, Um, the church and the religious feelings toward a kind of you know bastard child but uh, I didn't think it was cruel there's a there's a a pity there as well there's a there's just so many emotions there for me um, frankly that I I, I just had to see it again to just figure Mm -hmm. out how he made me feel the range of things that I felt in the space of a scene frankly
3: I I was I was um, it it so taken with and maybe even relieved that there was a sexiness to the film, too. I had just, we, Nick and I had talked recently, because you actually had, you had you just read it. If L Street Could Talk. I was yes. reading Another Country, um, Baldwin's book Another mm-hmm. Country for the first time, which just blew my mind. I don't know how many people here have actually read. You will read this book and you will not believe that this was written in 1960, mm-hmm. I believe. The things that he was writing, getting away with, frankly, and writing about. Um, and so much of that is about sex and all, Possible permutations of sex and different couples and same-sex couples, and um, it's amazing. So to see, to make to, to the fact that there are scenes in um, in the movie *If Beel Street Could Talk* that are just about that connection, that sexual connection between people, um, was was something. And it also made me realize how infrequently we see sex at all in American films these days. It's it's really it's it's surprisingly rare now. Yeah, which I.
1: I mean, I guess we have to talk about High Life a bit then.
3: <laughs> Not an American film.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. About
6: her first uh, English language film. True.
1: That's true, yeah. Anyone want to elaborate on why High Life might be relevant?
6: <laughs> well, I,
2: th- I thought my thought was okay. You've got a woman doing science fiction and, uh, instead of a man. So what's the difference? Um, it's gynecological rather than technological. <laughs> it's software versus hardware. So <laughs> I don't know. You sort of go on from there. <laughs> in fact, gynecology was a the main theme in what three, three of the films:
6: that's... Private
2: Life, High oh, Life, that's true. Yeah. and Roma. Yes. Oh, wow. Wow. You, were, you were Calibre talking scenes. about...
6: Um, I didn't mean to change the subject, but... <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: very true.
6: Best um, performances, um, oh, right. most captivating performances. Yeah. I, I've never seen Bonoche like this before. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And she's bitchy, too. I mean, She's end,
2: very bitchy. I love that. I mean, you really feel something's happened to her sort of there at the end where you know, all the, all the films, she's, she's been sort of condescending to people all the way through, and they congratulate her on this show she's doing and they being a cop show, and she said, I'm not a cop, I'm a crisis management expert. She keeps saying that line, and then finally at the end, the woman says, well, you played a crisis management expert. No, no, I played a cop, but at this point, she's <laughs> left the show, and whether they've killed her off, we don't quite know. She says she did it on her own. I mean, you feel a woman Age, I think, first of all, I think has gotten more interesting as she's gotten older. I mean, mm-hmm. she's less mm-hmm. beautiful, which is—I mean, beauty can be a distraction too, you know—and—and—and and, and she's there's something very real about that and about her anger about having to take older women's parts and—and—and and, and and, and I thought that was—I just thought the the um, the chemistry among those four was just fantastic, and also I, I think that and. Um, Private Life are two great films about marriage, about what a marriage can withstand. You mean
3: non-fiction? Non-fiction,
2: Non-fiction, sorry. Non-fiction and Private Life um, are great films about what a marriage can withstand.
3: Yeah, I mean that's two great Pinoch performances in this very, festival, yeah, yeah. I feel very different. Very
6: lucky to which have a very different, very different the two, Pino-
3: yeah. like high life and nonfiction, oh, right, is two right, crazy yeah, and different. She yeah, like yeah, yeah. Because part.
6: her body is so highly sexualized. Well, and such a like, bizarre way. high, way high life, life, she's
5: both. She's like a machine of desire. She's also an object of desire. She does both, which you never see her, a, an actor or actress have an opportunity to do that—to be fully desiring and fully desired
1: yeah. for mm-hmm. the entire yeah. film. It's yeah. incredible.
4: Yeah. And, and it's interesting, it paired against Robert Pattinson, who I would expect to be a sort of sexy star of a film, but he's, he's I mean, most, in the beginning, he's just with a baby. Mm. And I could frankly watch Robert Pattinson with a baby all day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you to Claire Denis for telling me that. But he, 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 has, a, he has a latent strangeness, but a confident strangeness, um, and the way that he communicates himself to, this, to his, his child... Um, that I, I wasn't expecting that from him in the way that, from Binoche, I was not expecting um, the full terrain of sexual energy. Yeah. Um, is which is uh, Claire Denis and Juliette Binoche, I think, are onto something. I think we need more of that. Between this and Let the Sun Shine In, I'm extremely interested in this project, um, if, if it's, if it's going to be that. I would love more of that from them, because I think that Claire Denis is great on desire and, and fascinating in desire anyway, and I think Juliette Binoche is such a wonderful instrument for that in ways that I wasn't expecting.
3: Mm-hmm. I'm curious, does anyone on this panel not like High Life? I'm all, or Because it's, I, it's a divisive film, but I do wonder if, if, if it's at all divisive at this panel. No, we all like it. Okay. I mean,
6: I, I love it, but I think it's such a beguiling film, because, mm-hmm. I mean, by virtue of being a science fiction film, you know, usually a science fiction film introduces something that's unknown, mm-hmm. that's from the future, and mm-hmm. in this film there really isn't right. anything of that. They're more sort of in, in limbo. You know, and um, there's sort of this um, coming together of a certain futurism, but it's kind of clunky. You know, it kind of reminds me of um, the um, the laboratory in uh, Trouble Every Day. You know, it's mm-hmm. like it's really white, but it looks like some of the stuff came from like IKEA. But it kind of works as well. You're know, kind locker. of convinced. It's so.
4: Yeah. yeah. I just want to stuff my like boxes there. And just
6: yeah. <laughs> But yeah. this sort of like that coming up against this weird primitism, um, mm-hmm. which you kind of see in *Burning* as well. Like,
1: yeah, um, um, I want to I want to want to drop in another film to, to to this kind of train of thought, and and also one from kind of that's kind of unstuck in time, uh, the Orson Welles film, mm-hmm. *The Other Side of the Wind*, uh, which is finally being shown in a in a, a finished form or reconstructed form, um, and that too kind of has. Uh, it's partly about desire, ex- explicit desire in this kind of amazing car scene. And, but also, I think, just kind of like the, the, the dying of the light, <laughs> uh, you know, this des- desire of this aging filmmaker. Because it's basically a film about making a film. Um, and that has, you know, kind of a, many layers within it f- for Wells making it in the 70s. But how did people react to this? Was this highly anticipated for, for any of you? Uh, yeah, perhaps. <laughs>
5: Sure, absolutely. I mean, yeah. it's like one of the it's one of the missing
1: Hol- holy grails yeah. of you
5: know, grail. cinema and I kind of loved it. Um, and I kind of I actually like that there really was no, you know, there's a, there's a there's a way in which, you know, if it's if if there's like a list of precise instructions for making a film and this is finally an opportunity to kind of like fill in, you know, like a uh, whatever like a coloring book where like somebody comes in and fills the colors and then we get the version of it. And this is really what he wanted. This is actually not quite that. This is an editor And a group of people basically trying to divine what the intentions were. Um, There was not, you know, I don't think this was like fully laid out. There was also, you know, what the intentions were versus what the material was. It just it required active creation in within the in recent years to make this film happen. And that tension between this footage shot so long ago by Orson Welles and the finished version, like that tension, I think, is actually kind of exciting. Rather than, oh, is this what he really intended? is what would it have been like if he had made it back then? Well, we won't know, but we do know this thing exists. and i'm I find it kind of exhilarating because there's a sense of there's a messiness that's preserved to it that feels mm. right. You know, but this should not feel polished. It should not feel finished. It shouldn't feel like it's behaving. It, 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 it's not at <laughs> all. Cute. Um and so like that um the ride that you take on it, which is, I mean, it's a little it's it's not it's a very different film. It's constructed very differently it's prepared very differently, it's written very differently in, in that it's not written quite traditionally, but it's it, it almost like a, there's a her smell quality to it too in the sense of it, it's a bit repellent mm. and the way that it is edited is aggressive and you're, it, the ride, it, it's, it's not, it's a cliche to use a word like that, but this is an incredibly bumpy trip the entire time and yeah. I, I, I was just grateful for it um, and I wanna watch it again because I have no idea what I watched in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it,
1: yeah, I mean it is kind of authentically a, a preserved work in progress, really. I mean, it's, you know, you're kind of yeah. seeing it with all the unruly passions and 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 intentions and half realized intentions all just kind of preserved. It's you know, it's, it's like you were seeing him preserved in amorous. He was in, in amber as he was throwing a punch or something. You know? <laughs> I also I, I I'm not a fan
5: of like too many instant reactions after a, a screening, mm-hmm. but I tend to appreciate. Cameron's <laughs> um, and I remember like like on the train I was like I don't know if I want to read too much of this and I saw you your comments on I was like this is exactly what I saw and I'm so what do I say <laughs> I don't remember I mean I liked
4: it yeah. I, I, but I, I mean and I remember feeling grateful for it yeah and and also I, I enjoyed hearing everyone who put it together talk about that process and I, I believe that when this is on Netflix there's going to be a, a little uh making of documentary that goes with it that I'm
2: I'm seeing that anybody seen that yeah, after no. the festival.
4: No, it's a third well. film. Yeah,
5: there's, oh, a, there's another. A third. Oh, yeah, third there's one. like a 45 yeah, no. minute film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. There's
2: yeah. a
4: Morgan Evel documentary right, right, about right. Orson that. making <laughs> yeah, it Yeah, right, and a, another a, one,
2: right? Yeah, another
4: yeah. one about the, you know, production process of this and I really just I this must have been <laughs> all day, all night. I mean, from the way they described it at the press conference afterward, just late in the process finding that one sliver of a shot that was filmed Uh, a reaction shot that was filmed in a different country five years later finding it at the right time right before they need to be finished um, and making it I I agree with Eric it's not neat um, I think that if Orson Welles had edited it himself, it would have been much different film. But Not oh, that, much different, but uh, the energy would have been.
2: There's that line somewhere, I think it's the film within a film, where they, they, get the, they said the reels got crossed, and they said it doesn't make any difference. They all <laughs> and you sort of feel a little bit that way about the whole thing. Yeah. Um, I think it is something you just want to see because of what it is, and for all the reasons you've said. I did think it was sort of Welles trying to kind of catch up with the zeitgeist and satirize it at the same time, and it's much cruder than he usually is. That sure. was the thing that struck me about it, interestingly so, but.
5: There was one thing in the, in the Q&A after that screening, I think you and I did the same one, where there was talk about how there's a bathroom scene in it that's incredibly bawdy, and yeah. and how there's nine hours of footage of a bathroom scene, which is now maybe two minutes in the film. And I'm fascinated, with what the heck is in those the nine bathroom
4: hours? bathroom orgy. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I, right, I, right, and it, it's, it's Dirtier and it's interesting I'm forgetting her name. Oya. Oh, yeah.
2: Kojar, oh, oh, yeah. yes.
4: Um, the the sense that, at least from what collaborators are saying, she's part of the reason that he got a little dirtier, though. that's more her, idea. Ah. that's more her impulse. Um, clearly he went with it and, clear, and clearly she was very game and that's interesting. And seeing him satirize Antonioni and, and others is just hilarious to me.
2: So here's what I want to know, since given all the partial films and incomplete films he's made, would this be his 13 and a half or 14 and a half or <laughs> 21 right. and a half? Where does it fit
1: in? Um, I
2: mean it I, is a sort of Fellini and it has that Fellini-esque quality yeah, it really does
1: definitely um, I, I want to give the audience a chance to uh, uh, pose yeah, a couple up. of questions yeah, what have we not talked about that they wanted to? yeah so is there, that's to a talk good talk question about. what yeah. film have we not talked about
0: hi uh, my question is what do you think was the common thread like common theme of all these movies because my feeling is that uh, it's the difference between telling the audience what to feel and live it very unclear and very ambiguous. And also, I find it a little bit too much on the sex part, at least favorite for me, killed bunnies forever. <laughs> I don't know how you <laughs> felt about it, but definitely killed it. And second, what do you think of the, um, uh, A Faithful Man and Cold War?
1: And what was Thank the second you. one again? Faithful
0: War. Man and Cold War.
3: Oh, Cold Thank War. You. Um, a Faithful Man and Cold War. She's, yeah. um, and also, is there a theme? Um, yeah. oh, it's it's so hard finding a theme across thirty films. You yeah, know? maybe um, we can
1: jump into those two films, maybe just to. Uh, I, to I can faithful. talk to
3: a faithful man yeah. very briefly. Um, this is the because Louis it's actually, I was as I was thinking about all the movies that I that I saw, I realized how many of them I really loved. I thought this was an incredibly strong festival, and you know there was one that I didn't like too much. <laughs> and It was a faithful man. Um, <laughs> And I think the reason for that isn't, I think, I think the filmmaking itself is perhaps a little paltry at times. I think there are actually even some like very weird shot reverse shots where I the angles like are kind of screwed up. But it's not, that's not the reason. The reason is I, I just add like, like at its kind of most basic idea, it seems to be a movie made by a very uh, successful, handsome young man who has cast himself in the lead of a movie that's about a handsome successful man who is fought over by two fantasy women (laughs) one of whom is is an older woman one is a younger woman and uh, the younger woman apparently in the character of the film has been in love with him since she was a preteen. so now that she's older she's she gets to finally date him and uh, that was sort of distasteful, I thought. And, and then, um, and the older woman is like a supermodel, Leticia Costa. So um, I don't know. I thought it was sort of just a self indulgent project that that you could make the case sort of falls under like the Gorel project. He's kind of aping some of the the cute little rom-com notions of his father. I don't think it was a very
6: ambitious project. No,
3: um, no. <laughs> maybe I'm giving it too much you
6: know credit. What? When we were in Toronto, all these people were saying how, you know, the new Olivia Assayas film is like a Woody Allen movie. And I totally disagree with that. You know, I think it's so much more complex and I deep understand. and and Full of, you know, really interesting Non-fi- ideas non-fiction? about a uh, fiction oh, yeah. Um but but I do think that the Louis Garel film is slightly Allen esque.
0: <laughs> there you <laughs> go. You know, it's just it's, a
6: very, mm-hmm. very sort of first drafty, you know. It's
5: very first drafty. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean it takes a lot for me not to flat out adore a Gorel
3: film by some member of the Gorel family.
1: Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And
3: this was I was underwhelmed significantly. Uh, mm-hmm. It well, also has the convention of like, the, the, the sassy kid. You know, it gives him like, this foil of the oh, sassy, the sassy endless kid. Endless yeah. scenes of this like, wise, beyond his years kid. It's just, <laughs> I, can't, I can't take it. It's, such it's, a, it's ideas for people, ideas of relationships, <laughs> ideas of situations. It's, none of it feels you know like it's coming from... Mm-hmm. Right. From from the soil. Like area. it's from a tradition, like from a French filmmaking tradition, but not from the soul, not from the heart. I really want to see this now. I, I, haven't. Yeah, me
6: too. I haven't seen it either. Love I love Sassy Kates. Empty calories for camp.
4: <laughs> I knew we did that. love Sassy Kates. It's not a long movie. I love short <laughs> well, I'm movies. A
6: short, I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's great.
3: Um, I haven't Adam, seen Cold War, though. The
5: Cold War. I haven't
6: seen it. I haven't either. No. Oh, wow. Yes. I've seen it. Man.
5: I I, oh, I'm, I really um, like Cold War. Good. Um, I think it's gorgeous. Um, I feel really defensive about that. I mean, I actually really like Paul, Paul Polakowski's films and his project and his different phases. And I, I feel defensive about it because I know there was this huge contingent of people who hated Ida and I loved Ida too. Um, I, I don't know. I think on the level of you hated me. I could you hate that? Why would you but people do.
6: People what? have. Yes. Monsters. Which, which
5: Monsters. Anyway. Um, anyway. <laughs> Uh, so okay, good. I don't feel defensive. Um, uh, I, I think this film is is, is fantastic. Um, I think it's shot in a similar aspect ratio as Ida, black and white again. Uh, I think that there's a real interesting tension this time between that Academy ratio and a sense of of un- unpredictable life happening within it. Like it's it's very it's very written, it's very structured, and yet what you're seeing in in, in these boxes, like there are these boxes, and inside those boxes are incredible, unpredictable life, I think. There's there's almost like like there's an inevitability to the narrative in terms of where it feels like it's going somewhere definite, but as you're watching it, I don't feel that way.
2: They're like self-contained sets. They are. They're like sets in a a musical progression almost, because it's very much about music.
5: Absolutely right, yeah. It's just, there's a lot of pain in there. Um, it's obviously, um, you know, it's, it's dedicated to his parents, and uh, that's the last thing you see in the film. But you know, and that's obviously going to be talked about a lot in terms of this. But that that level of intimacy and pain, and kind of just um, not knowing, they're unresolved characters and they're unresolved towards each other. And there's all this kind of ill-fittingness to it that feels. Um,
2: and they don't yeah. belong anywhere. That's the other thing geographically. I mean, they've they've, they've come out of the of Soviet era. And there's another theme I think you get a little bit in some of the films is, I mean, as opposed to the, the superhero action movies, here you have men floundering and women sort of flourishing and coming. And so in this one, there's a, he, at first he's in the ascendant because he's, he's a pianist, he's skilled, he can get jobs, and she's lost, and then she gradually rises and Sort of star is born a little bit thing. Mm. If I can yeah. mention the, that movie in this context. <laughs> I'm gonna get off in a different track. But,
5: but I'll just look, just as a, as a capper in terms of that original question, I, again, I don't know that you, I could come up with a theme for all those films, but the thing that I, I've been noticing a lot that works for me in terms of a lot of these films is um, a, a kind of tonal fluidity. Mm. Um, and, and I think Cold War fits into that category too, where um, you think you're watching one movie and it becomes another. Um, where you're thinking one type of scene and becomes another type of scene. And so the notion of types of scenes or types of movies winds up
3: getting blown out of the water. I think yeah. that's a good point, shape-shifting films. I think Three Faces, which you brought up
1: earlier, Very is a much. great example of that. And Ashes, Purest
2: White, we haven't talked about that. That also uh, has yeah. that same.
1: Uh, Very much so, yeah.
2: Changing over time. You yeah. really feel the passage of time. It's really an epic, I think,
1: and yeah. people change. Yeah, and, 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 and in a more explicit way, the six stories of The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Mm. Um, Each has its own little box it's going deep Mm. into. Yeah,
3: Yeah, well, yeah. Well, since that's six, it's six, it's vignettes, right? It's six different stories. Stories, That's the Coen Brothers film um, that I I think is sort of an extraordinary film. Um, uh, I've probably said too much about the film in the past, but I mean, it's a film that, uh, if you end up watching it on Netflix, because it's a Netflix uh, release. Try to see it in the theater if you can. But if you see it at home, um, I urge you to watch it all at once. Don't watch it in chapters. It oh, might yeah. seem like a series.
1: Definitely don't um, watch it in
3: bits. Because it's, it's, it's it would be a little baffling. I think that way. If you were what if you were to watch the first episode and say, well, like, I'll I'll catch up next week with the next sure. one, it would be extremely strange. Because even though they're not related by character. Um, or really by anything except the genre, the Western genre, um, it, what happens is it, it gradually darkens and deepens until everything you've seen uh, reflects back on the thing that you've seen before, and it becomes this sort of um, um, all-encompassing portrait of, of like mortality and melancholy. Yeah, it would
6: be like reading one chapter of the Bible or something. Like, you can't, you have to read everything. It's because every- <laughs> You have to
5: read the Bible in one sitting, apparently. <laughs>
6: I mean it's every single vignette has to do with like a specific theme that they've been grappling with throughout their entire career. And last time we talked about it, I had not seen this film. I actually have been looking forward to talking to you about it a lot. Yeah. It's 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 quite mind blowing. I think it's astonishing. Yeah.
3: It stays with you. It's yeah. it's, um, it's and I think it's their most political film.
6: Mm-hmm.
3: I think that you, it's, it's a movie political. about Trump's America. Mm-hmm. I really think that it's about the disappointments and disillusionments of Trump's America. Grifting. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. Whatever. Everything's everything's kind of this kind of uh, debased bottom line, mm-hmm. and it can be it can hit you right here. Right. I think they did it with Inside Lou Davis as well, where, um, you know, that, that the the line I don't see a lot of money in this. Like this movie is all about people. Yeah, the
6: Liam Neeson chapter really hit me hard. Ooh. Yeah. yeah, it was hard to watch.
1: Really powerful. Yeah, yeah. The, I mean, if if you haven't seen it, I just I want to describe the premise of that chapter because it's it's really kind of extraordinary. Liam Neeson plays, uh, I guess, a traveling entertainer. But he's he, his his gimmick is that he has a person who can who is an orator who recites poetry, uh, but who has uh, no legs and no 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 arms. So he'll just travel to a town. Put them out there, and 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 this genius uh, will just deliver these these you know poems and, and speeches. Like the, I think we hear the Gettysburg Address, we hear Ozymandias, we hear other great classics. and mm. uh, Then what you know how how their business model <laughs> goes on from there is kind of how that story goes. Um, I think. Excuse me, I think we're running to the end of our time here, but I, 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 I do want to get maybe just one more question in uh, if anyone has anything burning to ask, so to speak.
3: Burning? Good morning.
1: Yeah, I, I, I've actually been speaking exclusively in New York Film Festival puns. I don't know if you've noticed. But, uh, no. <laughs> I any, anyone a, else? I not seen a hand before. No? Yeah, no, there were a few they before. Changed, they right, their minds.
2: Did any of you all see the wild
6: pear tree? I just yes, love I really that movie. Want to. Oh, good. Yes, and I was just Me interested too. in your thoughts about that.
1: Oh yeah, I, I do love that movie. Uh, do, has anyone else seen it here? I'm literally the only person who's seen it. <laughs> Damn, I thought I'd planned it right. Um, no, I, I I love that movie. I saw it. I saw it in Cannes, um, and it was shown on the like second to last day. Uh, it's a movie by Nuri Bilge Jalan, um, who also did Winter Sleep um, and. Um, it's it's basically about like, a, it's kind of a classic tale. It's, it's kind of a classical movie in a way. It's about a young, frustrated intellectual who goes back home to the provinces and also is kind of a bit of a jerk. <laughs> He's just kind of hard to be around because he is so frustrated with his life. Um, and the movie just watches him as he deals with, uh, deal, deals with being out of place and, and, and not really able to be fulfilled. Uh, and also, you know, he, he talks with, uh, talks with people there, and there are all these long philosophical conversations. Uh, so, in some ways, it felt like a very old-fashioned experience. I kind of felt like I was, like in, in, in high school, going to you know an art house movie, an art house movie, you know, because it, it has that kind of grand ambition to it, with, with everything they talk about. Um, it's, it's it has a really uh, gorgeous feel for the, the countryside, uh, you know, these beautiful com- beautifully composed shots. Um, and also interesting like traveling shots and he uses drones. I've been on the drone watch the whole New York Film Festival. This is a film that uh, does use drones in, I guess a sort of interesting way. Um, but yeah, I also loved it. I'm glad to hear that you, that you loved it too.
3: Can I can can I talk about one more movie since you reminded me of it? Oh sure. Like can time. we still get an update on the drone watch though? <laughs> <the> drone <laughs> watch we're being watched by drones right now. <laughs> that's, that's you up here. Um just because you were talking about kind of a classical sort of art house film, mm-hmm. I felt mm-hmm. that way about Alice Roarwalker's Happy as Lazaro, yeah. which at the same time doesn't feel like any other movie I've ever seen, which yeah. is so exciting to experience. Um, it also has the it also kind of plays off of Italian neorealist. Uh, tropes and takes them in a completely different direction. It's sort of a time, literally sort of a timeless film. You can't tell what time you're living in, and it has a very um, startling time leap in it. Mm. It's just the, it, it just feels like a movie that could have been made fifty years ago, twenty years ago, ten yeah. years ago. It, it, but at the same time, so of the moment. Um, I, I don't know how she does what she does, but it, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to keep watching her. I yeah. think, I think. I think that's also going to be on Netflix. <laughs> there's so many. I feel like a Netflix ad or something. Um, but you'll be able to watch it at home again. If you could see it in a the theater, that would be great. But it's but it's something that everyone should sort of
1: experience. Is that one coming
6: out in theaters? Yes, it is. The other ones in are. November. And
1: it will be, yeah, and it will be released in theaters. Yes. And that's so way you, should you so you it. watch it in a the theater and then watch it ten times at home to savor every every, every frame. Um, that's my homework. I th- uh,
5: there's a dispute between us whether well, or not there's drone shots in Happy as Lazarus.
1: Um, as far as I thought I thought there was You're, I, thought are you there disputing? Heli- I thought there were helicopter shots I think sure. there were helicopter shots we're going to have to take, take this it. outside I think <laughs> I mean literally because drones are outside but uh, I, I thought there were drone shots um, I don't know was there something in the way it was floating I don't know anyway we're going to have to less resolve floaty. this I think there were less floaty less floaty well I don't know it doesn't take away from the film masterful cinematography um, thank all of you for coming and thank you to our wonderful wonderful panelists <clears throat> Thank you. You've been listening to the Film Comment podcast with music by Greg Angy. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comet. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle.